First John chapter one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Glad you're here. Welcome again. In uh, 1999, Gallup um, did a poll, and they published the poll, and it was a statistic of church life in America, a set of statistics. And one of the most important statistics that this Gallup poll found was that in 1999, 70% of Americans claimed to be a part of a church community. 70%. Uh, That's a high number. That number had held true for over a century at that point. In 2019, however, two decades later, an identical poll was released, and the number had dropped from 70% to 47%. A precipitous decline, and that was before COVID hit, about a month after this poll was released in February of 2020. That's probably not um, breaking news to any of us. People are leaving. People are leaving the church, and I think there's a lot of reasons why that topic is a topic for another time, Uh, but the facts are there. People are leaving, And, and for many of you, This is very personal. Maybe you're here this morning and you're considering leaving. Or maybe you've had, I know some of you, have had close friends leave Jesus and leave Jesus' people. And it's cost you. Some of you have had spouses leave. Some of you have had children leave the church. So is there a reason to stay? Is there a reason to stick with the church? Is there a reason to stick with Jesus and his people? First John is a letter written to people who were considering leaving uh, and who had had friends leave already. And first John is in so many ways an encouragement to stay, to stay with Jesus and to stay with Jesus's people broken and battered and frustrating though we may be at times. That's what we're going to study this fall. And today, I would introduce 1 John to you by looking at these four verses at the beginning that Drew just read for us. 1 John was written by John, the Apostle John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, and 2 John, and 3 John, as well as the final book in the Bible, Revelation. And John wrote this letter from the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And at the time of writing, John is almost certainly the last living apostle. Those 12 disciples who were with Jesus in his earthly ministry became apostles, and they had all been murdered for their Christian faith except John. John is the only one left, and when he writes this letter, he's very old. He's probably 85 or even 90 years old, and it's near the end of the first century A.D., 
Some commentators, by the way, mention that this helps explain the really strange style of 1 John. If you read 1 John, which I've encouraged you to do over the last couple of weeks, you might have noticed that. It reads like, honestly, the writings of a really old guy. Um, no offense to you 85 or 90-year-olds, but um, he, he kind of rambles, John does, in this letter. The letter's like listening to your grandfather talk to you and tell you stories. If you read through it, you'll notice that he often refers to the readers as my children. Preachers have struggled for years to break down the letter into digestible sections. Where does one thought end and another begin? It's not like the Apostle Paul or even like the Apostle Peter, where it's much easier to make logical breaks in the letter. In fact, the book really doesn't read like a letter at all. You heard Drew just read us the beginning. There's not the initial introduction, no salutation, no greeting. And, and there's no greeting at the end either. John doesn't even name himself in the sermon. It's actually much, excuse me, in the letter, it's actually much more like First John, a, a loosely organized sermon preached by an honorably retired pastor. One reason that there's none of these stylized forms that we, you see in other letters in the New Testament is that First John was written as a circular letter. That means that it was written by John. It was intended to be circulated across many different churches to be read by them, by all the churches that John would have been associated with, and that would have been a lot of them. He's writing to churches that are experiencing specifically division. Um, A lot of people were leaving, and the reasons for their leaving will become clear as we make our way through the book. But for now, suffice it to say that there were some in the circle of churches that John wrote to that had come to believe that Jesus was not who John and the other apostles said he was. And so they were starting their own, quote, churches that were centered on their newfound view of who Jesus was. And so this morning, we see John's introduction and some of the key themes of the letter are already in play here. He gives us reasons to stay. Three parts. First, encountering life. Second, Entering fellowship, and then thirdly, experiencing joy. Life, fellowship, joy. First, John writes about encountering life. The letter starts, again, without a normal introduction that an ancient letter would have. He just simply writes, that which was from the beginning. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you might be reminded of how John begins his gospel. Remember John 1.1. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The beginning in John's gospel is a reference to the beginning of time, the beginning of all things. But here, the word beginning doesn't refer to the beginning of time. Rather, it refers to the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. It refers to what theologians call the incarnation, when God became a man in Jesus. And at the very outset, I want you to see that John focuses us in he focuses us in on his own personal encounter with Jesus Christ, whom he calls the word of life. He talks about his encounter with life. And I want you to see, look at the verses again, how sensory his language is, how tactile his language is. Look at what he writes. That which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Verse 1, 
And again, in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. John's saying that he has a powerful personal experience, a powerful personal testimony. He tells us in verse 2, the life was made manifest and we, meaning me and the other apostles, we've seen it. And now we bear witness to it. We testify to it. Personal testimony is powerful. When I was reading this this week, over and over, I thought about my grandfather, who is now with the Lord, but he was a veteran of World War II. Uh, He fought in the South Pacific. And I remember as a child growing up, we would go visit my grandparents in West Texas, and I would sit with my grandfather and with his two brothers, my great uncles, and listen to them tell stories about their war experience, and listen to them tell me and my brothers about their own testimony, their own experience in the war. And listen, I've read a lot of books on World War II, but nothing has taught me as much about that war as their personal testimony. Personal testimony is powerful. John's doing the same. He's saying, I was there. I saw this man. I heard this man. I touched this man. Who is the man? The man is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the one whom he refers to as the word of life, the life made manifest, the eternal life. John's role as an apostle was to bear witness. That's what the word apostle means. It was to tell people, which is why he says he proclaims, to tell people about who Jesus was and what Jesus did. So John was there, he says. He was there when Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Not just wine, but really, really good wine at the end of the party when everybody's already drunk. He was there when Jesus spoke a word and healed the centurion's son. John heard Jesus tell the Pharisees in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am, invoking God's divine name. John saw Jesus walk on water. John saw and heard Jesus talk with Moses and Elijah as they appeared, and Jesus was transfigured on the mountainside. Most of all, John saw Jesus get arrested by the Romans, and and John saw Jesus on the cross, and John saw his dead body buried after the crucifixion, and John saw and hugged and kissed that same body in the power of new life, resurrected and glorified, walking towards him on the beach. John had encountered eternal life, seen in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, and he wants us to be persuaded. He wants you to be persuaded by what he had experienced. I think this is, at the very beginning, really a beautiful encapsulation of what the Christian faith is all about. Here's what the Christian faith is about. The gospel, the good news of the Christian faith is about what happened to Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus's life and Jesus's death and Jesus's burial and Jesus's resurrection. And it's about the many, many hundreds and even thousands of people who were there, friends, and who witnessed these things. And whom Jesus then commissioned and told them to go and tell people what they had seen. John was one of these witnesses. The reason that any of us in this room today, thousands of years later, are Christians. The reason that any of us are Christians 
is because John and others bore witness to and wrote down what they had encountered in Jesus. We heard that message proclaimed to us, just like John said, he proclaimed to them. And we believed it if we're Christians. And we were forgiven of our sins. We were declared righteous by God. We were brought into life with Jesus. The Christian gospel is historically rooted. It's historically rooted. It's grounded in facts, in real events that can be attested to, that people saw, that there's record and documentation of. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, you should know this. What happened to Jesus Christ is the most well-attested event in all of ancient history. It is not just a fairy tale. It is not just a story that the church, hundreds of years later, concocted to gain political clout. These are bare facts that all of us, if we're going to be intellectually honest, must reckon with. That's how it works. You believe, and I believe, based on what others like John experienced. You believe based on the experience of someone else. And because that's true, it's also true that you believe with someone. You believe with someone. That is always true. Do you know that? Who do you believe with? That's what John talks about next. Look with me. Secondly, he talks about encountering life and then secondly, entering fellowship. John recounts, he retells his own experiences of Jesus, the word of life. He reminds the readers of who Jesus is and what John had seen and heard and touched. And then look at what he does next. He talks about fellowship. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we also tell to you so that in order that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Here's what this means. When you believe in the apostles' message, in their witness, in their testimony about Jesus, their personal, tactile, experiential testimony about eternal life found in Christ, when you believe, you enter into fellowship. You enter into a community of belief. And notice the so that there in verse 3. One of the purposes for proclaiming the message of Jesus is to bring each one of us into a community, a community of believers. John says it's fellowship with us. Did you catch that? Notice uh, that means fellowship with him and with other witnesses to Jesus's life. This is a key point that we're going to see again and again as we work our way through this letter. Here's the point. Belief always ushers us into a fellowship of believers. Belief always ushers you into a fellowship of believers. And that is true of you even if you're not a Christian. No matter what you believe, you believe that with someone. If you're not a Christian here this morning, what do you believe? You have some sort of fellowship around whatever you believe to be true about the world, whatever you believe our purpose is in life, whatever you believe about God. Do you even know what it is? And if you are a Christian here, which most of us are, 
The Holy Spirit, speaking through John's words, wants each of us to be aware, listen, that there are always rival fellowships vying for our attention and devotion, vying for our allegiance. For example, a rival fellowship could be unbridled, win-at-all-costs capitalism that tells you that you only exist to make money and that you are your job. When you believe that your main purpose is to earn or to win or to perform, the rival fellowship will come calling. A rival fellowship can be a political party, Republicans or Democrats. We see them both demanding more and more, it seems, total allegiance to the cause, total allegiance to the party. They want to see your life revolving around their fellowship. You are a Republican first. You are a Libertarian first. You are a Democrat first. There's perhaps no clearer picture in our culture right now of rival fellowships than what we see in the LGBTQ community. That movement has taken on virtually every aspect of a religion. They have conversion experiences. They have evangelists. They have creeds. And the movement, like many other rival fellowships, demand total allegiance and devotion on pain of being exiled if you refuse to give it. My point is this. My point is this. These rival fellowships and the Christian fellowship each have non-negotiables. They each have non-negotiables that at some point will bring them into conflict with one another. Those who try to live in both communities will one day have to decide which fellowship is truly theirs. Heck, it can be relatively smaller rival fellowships for you, friends. A Facebook group that you love, which is weird to me, but some of you have that. Your kid's sports team and the sports parents and so on and so forth. The point is that the fellowship you're a part of is determined by what you believe is most significant for your life. The fellowship you're a part of is determined by what you believe is most significant for your life. What rival fellowships are vying for your attention and affection, are vying for your allegiance? At some point, you will have to make a decision. This reminds me of a story that I heard a pastor friend of mine tell about uh, the novelist Flannery O'Connor, a southern Gothic Christian novelist from the 20th century. Uh, One time, O'Connor was invited to a a dinner with other poets and novelists and artists in New York City. It was sort of a, a dinner of the elites, you may say. And at the dinner, they're having, you know, dinner conversation about the sorts of things that novelists and poets and artists talk about. And one other woman began poking fun of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper, saying, it's such a nice, quaint symbol. And and she was sort of looking at Flannery O'Connor, almost clearly directing her comments towards her, who was known to be a Catholic Christian novelist. And and Flannery O'Connor thought for a moment, and then she got up and threw down her dinner napkin and said, if it's just a symbol, then to hell with it. And she left, never to come back. You see, she had to make a choice. She had to make a choice between rival fellowships. Another example, much closer to home, 
In our own story as a church, I've seen this on multiple occasions. I thought this week of a young couple who was converted in our church and came to our church for some time, but were also very committed to physical fitness, which in and of itself is not a bad thing, and very committed to their gym community, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. And they stopped showing up every week, and we didn't see them very often. And I would reach out to them and not hear from them again. And finally, I got a hold of the man. I had married this couple. I got a hold of the man, and I asked where they've been. And he said to me this, our gym community meets on Sunday mornings, and they give us everything we need. Rival fellowship will vie for your allegiance. What John is saying is that faith calls us into fellowship of believers. That's true for Christians, and it's true for everyone else too. The original readers of 1 John, they're experiencing the pull of rival fellowships. They're experiencing the tug of temptations to leave. And John says, remember that fellowship with us who witnessed what happened to Jesus is also fellowship. Did you see what he says? It's also fellowship with God the Father and with his Son. And he says more later in the letter. But to sum it up, John basically says, you can know that our fellowship is genuine. You can know that our fellowship is worth devoting your allegiance to because of the way we love one another. That's an audacious claim. John says, you should make our fellowship primary. The fellowship centered around believing what happened to Jesus of Nazareth because we love one another in a way that no other fellowship does and no other fellowship can. Examine Christian community and thereby know that our faith claims are true. Why should you side with Christian fellowships over the varied rival fellowships that want our allegiance? Because of the love we have, John says. Nothing else compares. So is that true in your life? Is that true in our lives? We are to be known, John says, by our love and also by our joy. Let's look at that lastly. Third, experiencing Joy. John gives two purposes for his proclamation of his experience with Jesus. The first we just looked at, remember the so that, that indicates purpose. He says, I'm telling you what I saw so that you too may have fellowship with us and with God. And then verse four, we are writing these signs, excuse me, these things so that, there it is again, so that our joy may be complete. Did you catch that? Isn't that weird? He says, our joy. You would expect John to say, we're writing these things so that your joy, your joy may be complete. And in fact, later copies of the New Testament, some scribe somewhere along the way changed it to say your, but that's not what the original says. It says our. John is writing, I love you so much that I cannot experience the fullness of joy that God wants for me unless you're a part of the community of faith along with me. John's a great pastor. He's a grandfather pastor who loves his children and he wants them there with him. It hurts him. It breaks his heart to see people leaving. And he says, you are stealing from my joy when you're not here because I can't be fully happy in Jesus if I'm not fully happy in Jesus with you. Paul says something very similar in Philippians in chapter two. 
He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, Paul says, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, by having the same love. Slightly less important than Paul, C.S. Lewis says something very, very similar. In one of his great books, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis is writing about the love of friendship. And he tells a story about him and Charles and Toller's. Toller's is J.R.R. Tolkien. You should all know that. Charles is Charles Williams, and Jack is Clive Staples, C.S. Lewis. And, and Lewis says, this is after um, one of the three of them has died. It's after Charles Williams has, has died. And, and he gets together with Toller's still, but realizes that his relationship with Tolkien has changed because Williams is no longer there. And he writes that when one person leaves a fellowship, it affects the ongoing relationship dynamic with every other person that's apart. That's what friendship is. One friend brings a new element to the entire group, and the loss of that friend affects everyone. I find this encouraging. I want you to find it encouraging too. Here's what we can learn. This is a beautiful portrait of the mutuality of the Christian life, the mutuality of the Christian life. What I mean is this, our connection with one another in Jesus is so close that we deeply affect and impact one another by our words and behaviors and actions. Remember what's happening to the churches John is writing to. People are leaving. People are abandoning the faith. People are denying the Lord that they once claimed. And it's been deeply hurtful. Deeply hurtful to the fellowship. And John's here saying it's been deeply hurtful to me and to others who are apart. And the reason is because the church is a family. The church is so closely knit that when one part of us is hurting We all feel it, that when one of us is cut, we all bleed. But but the converse is also true, and that's good news. The joy of others, the joy of others can sometimes carry us when we don't feel joy. Have you ever had that experience, Christian? Sometimes our lives feel just overwhelmingly sad and, and hard and and difficult, and we're just done with it. Done. That's when we need the fellowship the most, you see. The life of friends in Christ to buoy us when we can't help ourselves. That's the kind of community the church is to be. It's what John envisions in this letter, and it's what we all, I think, long to be a part of. So how Can a community of joy like that, where we're so deeply implicated in one another that we're impacted by one another, how can that kind of community be possible? How can we be so closely knit? Here's how. Let me close with this. It's because not only are we all affected by the lives of each other, but above all, all of us are affected by the life. By the life of the founder and the leader of our fellowship, Jesus himself. In fact, what John here writes of himself, right? That my joy is made complete when you believe and when you stick with it. That is ultimately seen, not in John, it's ultimately seen in Jesus. Remember, 
we just studied Hebrews. Remember what Hebrews 12 says? It says that Jesus endured the cross. Jesus endured the shame of a gruesome and despicable death on a tree. Jesus endured the curse of human sin being poured into his spirit. He endured the wrath of God being emptied fully on him as he drank the cup. He endured all of that. Hebrews tells us for what? The joy. The joy set before him. What does that mean? It means this. Jesus loves you so deeply. He loves you so vastly. He loves you so greatly that it was joy for him to go to the cross. And it was the cross that led to joy. The joy of seeing his redeemed people come into his community. The joy of seeing you personally, of you individually. The joy of seeing me personally and individually. The joy of seeing us together rest in him in faith and experience the eternal life that he brings. The gospel gives us joy, yes. But the crazy thing is that it gives Jesus even more. Jesus is more overjoyed at saving us than we are at being saved. Jesus is more overjoyed at saving us than we are at being saved. How great is his love. So if that is true, there are reasons to stay, to stay with Jesus and to stay with his people. Stick with him. Let's pray.